Welcome to the Spike Camp Podcast. Spike Camp is a free online community for hunters that support conservation. It's a great place to share stories and your experience with other hunters. As a member of Spike Camp, you get access to all of our hunting live streams, discussion channels, contests, hunter resources, and events that we host. Membership to Spike Camp is free. Our only ask is that you are a member of a hunting or conservation group before you register. Head over to spikecamp.com to join us. This episode of the Spike Camp Podcast is brought to you in part by Precision Optics. Omer and his team are the ones to trust when it comes to mountain hunting gear, guns, and optics. Precision Optics is a major supporter of conservation, and we are proud to partner with them. Head over to precisionoptics.net and tell them that Spike Camp sent you. Welcome to Spike Camp Podcast. Tonight's guest on this episode of Camp Chat is known to many of us in the BC hunting community as a wildlife biologist in northern BC. If you follow him on Instagram, then you also know him. He's a very avid, very successful hunter. We're very excited to have Mike Bridger, a.k.a. BC Bridger, on the show. Mike, welcome to Spike Camp. Hey, Chuck and Blake. Good to be with you guys. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Maybe we could start off if you could give us a little bit of a bio on Mike Bridger and uh, tell us about your past life and hunting and how you got into it and that kind of stuff. Sure. Well, I'll try to keep it exciting for your listeners. I, um, well, it also, I guess, started in Northwestern Ontario where I was born. Um, became a pretty avid fisherman, even by the age of about six uh, out in Ontario. And then we, my family moved um, to British Columbia back in 1994. Yeah, I was about six years old at the time. And we, we landed in the Kootenays and, uh, which was a pretty nice area to be in for, you know, for fish and wildlife and hunting and fishing. And so that uh, my, I guess, passion for the outdoors and fishing at a young age sort of developed into to hunting at a pretty young age. And my, my dad was a hunter and uh, he had a bunch of friends that were avid hunters as well that would, uh, and between, you know, that group, they would get me involved and take me out on lots of hunts, you know, probably from when I was maybe eight eight years old onwards going into the elk camps and the East Kootenays and deer camps. And, uh, yeah, I just got exposed to it. Uh, loved it became my number one passion pretty quickly hunting and, um, yeah, just had a great mentor group of older, older gentlemen down there that taught me a lot about hunting and ethics and, uh, you know, appreciating the, the resource and all that good stuff. And, um, so, yeah, my hunting career started in the Kootenays. I was really a, probably an elk hunter to start more than anything. Uh, my first big game animal when I was, I think, maybe 13 was was a bull elk. And um, elk hunting became a passion, yeah, from a young age. I mean, I was I was hunting elk back when I, uh, when I was bugling. I would use my own voice as a bugle. And then something changed in my teenage years, and I couldn't quite hit those high notes anymore. But... Um, that you know so that plant a seed was planted at a young age and then of course just hunting deer and you know getting the odd moose draw there and so um yeah that's the, the passion was pretty strong and that sort of led um you know as i got through high school that that outdoor passion sort of directed me towards a few different things one that uh, seeking like a further education in the wildlife world and that kind of took me to 
to university um, up in Prince George, uh, University of Northern BC, and I was pursuing a couple degrees there in, in fish and wildlife management and wildlife biology sciences, those types of things. And it also, that passion and having a few good connections in the industry also got me into a bit of guiding too. So when I was going to university every spring and summer, and sometimes I'd take a fall semester off as well, I was able to go go up north generally and do some guiding. So uh, yeah, it was year round wildlife immersion and uh, yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, it was good times and that kind of got me started and finishing school and then getting into the wildlife biology career and then yeah, still spend as much time as possible as I can pursuing that passion. Yeah, right on. So you grew up in the days of the, uh, the uh, really good elk hunting in the Kootenays, as the old boys like to say, right? Yeah, well, it's funny, actually. So right around when I started going to elk camp was shortly after a couple of really brutal winters in the Kootenays. And your listeners might remember those years. I think it was about 96, 97, and then maybe again, 97, 98, huge snow years, like record deep snow. And it crushed the deer and elk populations. Um, and so when I started going elk hunting right after that, it was pretty dismal, actually. I think I miss, just missed out on the real glory days there. And uh, right. yeah, man, it was it was real quiet. And even in the backcountry where we were hunting, I mean, we were, you know, I'd go hunts and not see or hear an elk. And then in the early 2000s, it started to pick up again. You started to see some elk and get some bugling going, get some bugling matches going. And then by, yeah, probably by 2002, 2003, the, the hunting was really good again. And we were, we were killing mm -hmm. elk every year in there. So did you, um, um, was that the era when, like it was pre-road closure? You said backcountry in the Kootenai. So were you guys packing in or were you able to get vehicles and stuff in? Yeah, where we were, you could get in most of the way, like to our base camp via motor vehicle and then there was some closures farther up in that valley so and mm -hmm. in the area generally there were a bunch of motor vehicle closures already so i don't recall when those were in place but uh, yeah they were they were established by the time i was hunting there mm -hmm. as a youngster well that's cool and then you had like you said you had that the older guys kind of mentoring and and they yeah. were cut from a different cloth i'm sure than what we see today and yeah well, yeah. <laughs> yeah i know i had i had a lucky for me when i moved to bc i had i had an older gentleman as a, a mentor as a moose hunter and you know he was hardcore old school you know he would kill a moose and you, you know you dragged it with rope if you could get a machine close to it uh, there was no deboning or gutless method mm -hmm. in those days. You just, you know, he literally would, you know, cut it into four chunks using a hatchet and a hammer right down the spine, you know, and it's like, <laughs> yeah. God, it's got to be an easier way, right? But yeah, yeah. they were, I wouldn't, wouldn't trade boys, it though. No, good lessons learned. And yeah, a lot of those old boys were kind of set in their ways, but at least they sort of give you that foundation. And then as time goes on, you learn some new tips and tricks uh, how to do things maybe a bit easier. But yeah, having that mentorship is, is so important i find uh, for any new hunter um, to, to get into this this passion right on so um you did some guiding up in the north too tell us a little bit about that how'd you land a guiding gig yeah well 
was lucky uh, a friend of mine who's also a wildlife biologist for the, the province, Andrew Walker, uh, he was working as a hunting guide as well. And uh, he got me my first, we actually both grew up in Nelson and the Kootenays there. Um, so knew each other going back. He's a few years older than I am, but he, uh, he got me my first foot in the door to uh, a guide outfit up in the Northwest Territories, Arctic Red River was where he was working. Oh, yeah. And he was able to get me a nice little job right out of high school um, to come up at, to work as uh, like a packer, basically like an assistant guide. Um, mm -hmm. So that was, yeah, quite an experience and yeah, totally different style of hunting than I had done like uh, in the Kootenays, really like this, you know, the pure alpine and big, big, long backpack trips and stalking animals. And those, so there were a lot of new skills there I had to pick up. But yeah, I got to work with uh, an incredible sheep hunter up there all summer long on all the hunts. I went with uh, Tavis Molnar was his name. He's, mm -hmm. uh, he was, he's operating Arctic Red River. And um, yeah, I learned a ton. And, uh, and then, yeah, once I got my foot in the door in that sheep um, guiding world up there, after that, I actually switched outfits just because I had good opportunity and had some good references to uh, go to Ramhead Outfitters, formerly known as yeah. Ramhead, uh, mm -hmm. and, then, and then recently called Canal Outfitters. And now more recently, it's changed hand again, and it's now Keel, Keel River Outfitters, I believe. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I worked for five years there and yeah, just uh, incredible experience. I'd go up there every summer between semesters of school. And like I said, I, sometimes I take the fall semester off school and spend a little mm -hmm. more time up there too. Right on. So did you ever put uh, a tag on a doll sheep yourself up there? Yeah, actually I did. So the, the one nice thing of uh, working for Ramhead at the time was the, uh, the outfitter had a bit of an incentive program for his guides. So on your, on your second year working there, he'd let you take a caribou tag with you. And mm -hmm. so I was lucky enough to get a nice caribou up there in the territories. And then on year five, um, you could take a, take a sheep tag with you. And of course, yeah, to just arrange it so that one of the other guides would be able to come along with you because you needed to be guided on that hunt, right, as a non-resident. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm year five up there, the timing worked where we had a bit of a break between hunts and um, I actually went with another guide to get him with him uh, to get his ram on his fifth year and then he came with me a few weeks later and we we got uh, got my ram there a nice 11 year old doll sheep up there so that was pretty cool and yeah I mean that if anyone ever gets the opportunity to hunt or guide up in the Northwest Territories it's uh, yeah it's a real special place and just so many sheep and you just get exposed to so many rams uh, it's a great mm -hmm. place to cut your teeth and like just get so comfortable with looking at rams, aging rams, looking at horn curls and all that where, you know, you might see, you know, 40, 50 rams on a hunt in some of those areas up there. Whereas, you know, compared to a lot of places where you're hunting stone sheep in BC, you, you know, you don't, it's a pretty small sample size of rams you get to look at. So up there was a real like fast track uh, opportunity to learn about sheep hunting. And yeah, it was, it was a pretty great time. Well, that too, and I guess when you magnify that over uh, the amount of days in the field, if you're guiding and then also getting that opportunity after five years to be able to shoot a ram yourself, you've probably seen, you know, in the thousands of, of sheep as opposed to hundreds or, you know, dozens if you're a, a local here in BC. Yeah. You, know, you've, yeah. you can go a long time without seeing a ram, but what a cool experience. And I know, man, if uh, 
if there was incentive programs like that in every job, wouldn't that be something? Every <laughs> five years you get a doll shape. Could you imagine? Yeah, that was <laughs> a heck of a bonus. Yeah, for sure. Um, one thing I noticed, you know, um, I've known you now for probably a year or two. I've talked to you off and on over the last couple of years and started following you on uh, Instagram. And uh, it's interesting. Your profile is a lot of fun. I got to say, like when you start digging <laughs> into your posts, um, the one thing that jumps out to me, I know you, you, you hunt a lot of species, pretty much everything that, that roams the West, but there's three species that seem to have more, uh, more space, I guess, on your platform. And that's, uh, sheep, elk, and whitetail. Those, are those your three kind of favorites or is there something we're missing? Maybe you're not, maybe you're not posting all the pics. I don't know. Yeah, no, you're probably, I think that summarizes it pretty nicely. The, uh, yeah, elk always sheep, certainly like that obsession of, of just everything that comes along with hunting sheep. Um, yeah, since, you know, getting out of high school, that's been pretty prevalent. The whitetail deer is a bit of a new one for me. Like I think I kind of cycle between, you know, being passionate about mule deer hunting and whitetails and mule deer. And now I'm back stuck on whitetail big time up here. Uh, I'm up in, mm -hmm. in Fort St. John up in the Peace region and there's some pretty good whitetail hunting opportunities here. And yeah, I've become, you know, I've really just, I haven't, haven't been doing it for too long, maybe like four or five years now of getting pretty intensive on the whitetail hunting up here. So I'm still trying to figure it out and there's lots to learn, but uh, yeah, it's quickly become a real obsession. Just everything that goes along with the hunting of whitetails up here, like the cameras and uh, you know, tracking individual bucks over the course of years and uh, you know, whether it be baiting or working scrape lines and all that kind of stuff. I'm it's yeah, it's, quickly become a real obsession and spend a lot of time and probably a lot of money on that one. Well, that's the thing with, uh, if you talk to hardcore whitetail hunters, you know, they, they kind of frame it as an obsession and an addiction, right? Because the whitetail are so smart. They're so elusive. You can pattern them to a certain degree, but then the pat the pattern doesn't matter because they do whatever they want anyway. Right. So, um, yeah, especially know, come around, November. Especially yeah, yeah, like exactly. you say, yeah, all bets are off then. Yeah, exactly. Well, we're gonna we're gonna circle back to whitetail. I kind of want to dive into uh, mountain hunting and sheep hunting a little bit with you, but we're gonna come back to to whitetail. Um, w when did you get into sheep hunting? Apart from the, I guess, uh, post guiding, did you start? Were yeah. were you always a mountain hunter in BC, like as well, or how did that all play out? Yeah, um, I guess. So I'd done maybe, I don't know, three or four years of the guiding for doll sheep, but I hadn't hunted sheep in BC for myself at that point. So yeah, in the Kootenays, I never grew up hunting sheep. My first exposure was right out of high school going up to NWT. So after, yeah, several years of, of doing the, the doll sheep guiding, I figured I'd better try to get out for myself uh, and, and for stone sheep in particular. So yeah, my first stone sheep hunt, um, was with a, a good friend of mine, Johnny Nykirk. We had just finished guiding up in mm -hmm. the Northwest Territories and uh, we drove up that year. So we had the long drive up and then the long drive back at the end of the season. And our plan was to stop on the way home. I was mm -hmm. living in Prince George at the time. He was in Quinell, I think. And uh, yeah, anyway, we were gonna stop just along the highway as a lot of sheep hunters do and um, head into the mountains just, just right from the highway. And we were coming back through late September, which 
which kind of became one of my favorite times to hunt sheep actually later um, in September and, and into October, especially for those highway hunts. And uh, anyway, yeah, we had a couple spots like on the map picked where we thought we wanted to go. And, you know, we were, we spent, we just spent three months, you know, up in the mountains hunting sheep and caribou and all that. So we were in pretty wiry and in good shape, a little burned sure. out too though. So we looked at a few valleys or like, eh, I don't know want to go all the way back in there and so and then we went to another spot oh there's a couple trucks there and then we went to another valley um that we really knew nothing about thought it looked like it was hard to get into so we parked the truck and just started hiking and we uh got kind of to the base of the valley one day and we did sort of a test hike into the back and we found some found some sheep back there using lambs and uh we figured it was good enough to give it a shot so we came back out grabbed our camp and moved camp into this valley steep little nasty valley to get into not a really big area but like beautiful sheep country in the back and uh yeah our first day actually hunting in there johnny and i split up he went climb some mountain like he does and i went kind of staged the valley floor like i like to and then uh, i got kind of into the back end and um sort of late in the day and kind of had this hanging basin that i was looking into and noticed three rams way up high on this slope and uh could tell right i was several kilometers away but i put the spotting scope on the one ram and i could see he was very very good ram and uh but i didn't have much time but i also you know for the first time in my life didn't have to wait for anyone either right so i uh i just i'm like all right i'm going for it i got a couple hours and i got several kilometers to cover but i boogied my way up across some valleys, up some canyons, and anyway, got into this little hanging valley, and those sheep had come down the slope a bit, which was great, and I uh, I got to the kind of the edge of this hanging valley, or this basin where I could look in, and I could see one ram up high bedded, and then I couldn't find the other two rams, including the, the nice ram I was after, and uh, I looked around. There's only one place they could be. There's this little ravine about 300 meters away from me, so I set up, I got prone and just waited there and I knew they had to be in there and they would pop out. But, you know, timeline's on. We're in the last like, you know, 15 minutes of daylight. I'm actually getting pretty cold. It's late September, a little chilly. I'm starting to shake a bit. And uh, so I, I took a bit of a gamble and I started howling like a wolf to try to get something to move here. And uh, mm -hmm. howled a few times, saw that top ram stand up. So I knew they heard me. And then yeah, maybe 20 seconds later, oh, here come those two rams out of that ravine. They popped out. And uh, yeah, stood there. I, I looked at that ram again. could see, I mean, he was probably like four or five inches above legal. And I could see the rings, you know, some tight rings there. And uh, yeah, let them have sure. it. And that was, my, that was my first stone sheep. So I was... Kind of spoiled first real stone sheep hunt for myself. It's basically day two of the hunt. Uh, beautiful 10-year-old ram, real curly one, late season, beautiful cape. I mean, it was yeah, just incredible experience in ram. And we packed them out the next day. And that was uh, just a quick, dirty little stone sheep hunt for my, my first one. Well, some people use a rest stop to catch a sleep on the way down. You guys just did another, just did a random <laughs> stone sheep hunt and killed a big one. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, that's cool. So let uh, just a question on the, uh, you know, on the season, obviously in that case, you guys were coming back from a full season. So, you know, you, you didn't really have a choice to whether you're going to do opener or not. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned at the start that you, know, you really like the late seasons. 
Um, obviously the Cape, probably less mm-hmm. pressure. What what other things do you like about that season in comparison to the earlier mid? Yeah, a, a few. Like there's pros and cons for sure. I like cooler temperatures. I, I hate hunting if you happen to time it in August and you hit those like 30 degree temperatures. I don't like that. Don't love the bugs that time of year. I don't don't love the massive thunderstorms. I'm a bit of a chicken now when it comes to lightning. When I'm up in the mountains, I've had a couple of bad experiences. Mm-hmm. So I kind of like going later and avoiding that. Uh, and then I guess one of the real obvious reasons is just it's not as busy out there. Yeah, no in. pressure. Uh, yeah, yeah, way less pressure. Although I'm sure more and more folks are, are doing that later hunt now, especially with the you know the gears got better and you can be a little more comfortable during those hunts because you don't know what you're going to get. Um, you know, you can get some pretty extreme cold and some deep snow, but yeah, that that like you know the the opener in for August first here in BC is obviously very busy, popular. You know, I know that about thirty percent of the rams that get taken here in the Peace region, about thirty percent are killed in that first week or ten days. So, right, um, yeah. So there's you got that advantage of getting first crack at those rams, but um, it's going to be busier can be buggier hotter the capes you know are very short if that matters it doesn't really matter too much but um, those are just a few of the considerations for me anyway yeah and it, you know when you talk to um, you know savvy experienced sheep hunters that have chosen to go later they'll also tell you you've got opportunity to find rams that you don't really usually see in the early season right like the timber rams and the really you know, high altitude rams or whatever that just stay in spots where people don't go. Right. So there's that too, I guess. Right. Yeah. That's a good point too. Yeah. Like, uh, especially if the weather starts to roll in, it'll push some of those sheep out of the back country, maybe where they've been hiding out and you'll start to see them more in some of that front country heading towards winter range or their rutting ranges. And they'll be a little closer to the ewes and things like that. So yeah, that's another mm-hmm. advantage for sure. Yeah. Awesome. So do you, uh, do you put a, a sheep hunt on the docket every year? You try to get out every year? Yeah, pretty much. I think, uh, uh, between my hunting partners and I, we've, we've gone probably every year since 2014 or 15, I killed my first stone sheep back in 2011. And then I guess probably took a few years off and then, yeah, we've been going pretty steady for the last eight years or so. And, I've got like just kind of the small sheep hunting group that I go with just a few guys and, you know, one year, one guy doesn't come and it's just, you know, two of us or sometimes there's three of us and we've kind of cycled Mm -hmm. through on hunts where we've all, you know, we've all got a ram now. Um, So we were having good success there and getting a ram, you know, amongst our sheep hunting party just about every year for a few years there, but now we've all got them and we haven't killed one since um mm-hmm. you know partly due to just opportunities and then partly due just because we're i mean we're just i guess being pickier if that's what you want to call it we're just you know looking for something kind of special or old or you know just holding out just enjoying the hunt we're not i don't think any of us really feel the pressure to get a ram um we probably don't hunt as hard as we used to either and uh just make a nice trip out of it and look try to find a nice old ram i kind of like hunting these areas where there aren't many sheep there like in hopes of finding something old and special that strategy hasn't really paid off um (laughs) you know it's hard to come by those sheep in those low density areas but uh yeah hopefully eventually we'll we'll find some other ones that kind of check all the boxes and we'll want to we'll want to harvest well i mean you touched on something that 
you know, really, it makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, I haven't killed a ram yet either. I was, I've been on one successful hunt. And then in that case, I, I was sort of the main guy planning it with some help of a couple of friends finding the right spot. Then we put a, we put one of our buddies, there was three of us, put a buddy on a really nice ram and uh, let him have a shot at it. And as funny as this sounds, it almost felt like that pressure was off to a certain degree going into the next season. It's like, okay, well, I did, you know, I was on a successful one. I haven't put my tag on one yet and I've passed on some ramps, so I'm holding out. So, it, you know, at some point, yeah. you know, I think when I do, hopefully if I, if and when I do uh, punch a stone sheep tag, then, you know, from that point forward, it's going to be about my partner and, and the adventure. Cause you know, every, no matter what you go out on those hunts, you're going to have the fun, you're going to have the adventure. And if you haven't killed a ram, then you've got a level of pressure. And yeah. then once you, you know, once you're past that and over the hump, then it's just fun with your buddies and seeing great country and stuff too. Right. So yeah, um, totally. And so, then, uh, uh, or I was gonna add, Blake, have you been out on a sheep hunt yet, or is that on the docket? I have. Yeah, I've been yeah. Uh, maybe. I think I've, I'm up to five sheep hunts so oh, far. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah, uh, I don't have a ram yet myself. Uh, I'm I'm second uh, order. First is my dad. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's my part. He's my main hunting partner. Um, yeah. We've got I've got yeah. two other kids as well. They're all grown up. And uh, they all hunt, but Blake is my obsessed child and my yeah. kind of my main hunting partner. And uh, it's been an, it's been a journey for us on the sheep hunting side of things. And we have a blast. We you know yeah. we've got our gear dialed. You know we've been on several. I think I've only ever been on maybe one hunt without him on a, on a sheep hunt. So okay. I might have. Yeah. I think I got six. The one yeah. you went on without me is when you got the ram. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you got to just go out and have a good time, and uh, you know, hunt hard and all that. But the odds would suggest, you know, if you just look at the statistics, that only about you know eight to thirteen percent of hunters are gonna notch a, mm-hmm. a stone sheep tag. So you know, the odds are wow. kind of against you. So you got to keep that in mind. Yeah, you know, and for us, like we're you know we're confident enough now in the mountains where um, we we feel pretty dialed in with our gear. You know, we're not taking ex, you know extraordinary weight in. Um, we're finding sheep, and we're we're in position. We've been in positions where you know we've had opportunity, and we've made a choice not to shoot for a variety of reasons. And when you when you have that opportunity and you make a choice to not do it for what we consider the right reason, whether it's safety or uh, an age issue, potential age issue or a young ram, then that's a successful hunt to us. And that's how we operate. So, and you know, the moment we come off the mountains from a sheep hunt, we within days we're booked again for the next year. So, I mean, that hook is really, really set for us. Um, You, Mike, you mentioned uh, your small group that you hunt with. Uh, so you probably have sort of the same uh, philosophy about hunting partners as Blake and I do, but you got a partner that hunts with you that um, not everybody takes with them. Tell us a little bit about Bobby. Cause I see, I see oh. Bobby <laughs> in a lot of those photos. My trusted dog there. Yeah. She, uh, she's probably the best hunting partner. I have no offense to any of my other hunting partners, but she's, uh, she's pretty reliable, never complains. And, She's just, yeah, I don't know. There's something about having that dog companionship out there that I love. And she's, yeah, thankfully she's a pretty smart dog and I worked pretty hard in the early days to train her. She's laying right here. That's what I'm looking over. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, she's great. Like, yeah, just so much fun to have 
have those dogs out. I don't know what it is. I guess I'm a bit of a sucker for dogs, but uh, yeah, she. I mean, there's a few bonuses. Like she's great with bears. She never makes a peep. The only time you ever hear her bark or growl is when she catches wind of a bear or a wolf or a wolverine or some sort of predator. Um, so that's nice to have along in the backcountry. And yeah, just a good companion. Um, yeah, I take her on just about every hunt I go on, except for maybe the whitetail hunts where I'm sitting in the cold, cold blind. But even yeah. <laughs> some days yeah. I'll take her on those ones too. So yeah, she's a, a lot of fun to have along. And uh, yeah, she's a good elk hunter too. Like she, I call bulls in right to me screaming and she doesn't move a muscle and never growls or chases or anything like that so it's uh yeah it's nice it's nice to have along yeah that that must be amazing that must have been like a real process to to train that into her right like just the the especially with elk i would think you know it's like Mm. that's the noisiest hunting we have for sure right yeah i don't know i think i got a bit lucky i mean yeah she's a smart dog like i say she's kind of a lab collie cross so she's got some brains and uh I, you know, taught her from a young age just to never chase ungulates or even really pay much attention to them. And that kind mm-hmm. of stuck. And that, that was about it. I never, I've never really had any issues with her. And yeah, she just naturally picked up that instinct to, to bark at bears. I'm not really sure. I kind of egged that on a little bit, I guess, but uh, that's mm-hmm. something that was sort of a natural instinct as well. So pretty, pretty amazing, maybe a little bit lucky. And yeah, she's not a very big dog, so she doesn't pack a lot of weight for me on some of those trips, but she can pack her own food, and sometimes we sneak a, a beer or two into her, her panniers, and she can carry those up to our nice, her spike nice. camp, too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Um, so how old is she now? She's about six years old, yeah. So she's, I think she's still got a few good years in the mountains, and, and then we may mm-hmm. wind it down to some more mellow elk hunts and deer and those types of things yeah right on well that's cool um so let's switch gears and get into the elk hunting a little bit you had sure you've got you got some crazy again some crazy footage and uh trail cam videos and stuff on there on your instagram um you talked a little bit about your early early years um elk hunting with your dad and his buddies um how did those early years compare to today and fast forward to 23, 24, I guess now for elk mm-hmm. hunting is, have you seen it change a lot over the years as far as techniques and strategy and stuff? Yeah. I, well, yeah, for sure. I have, I think like, I think back to when I was hunting in the Kootenays and in our group, I mean, I don't know, we didn't, I wouldn't say we didn't know what we were doing, but it was just different. Like he didn't really think much about strategy at the time. He just kind of walked up valleys and you got to the bottom of an avalanche slide and you like blew on your fluty little bugle. And one would, I mean, I'm probably oversimplifying it, but it'd be like, okay, you hear one bugle walks out to the edge of the slide. You take a hundred yard shot. And I don't know. It seemed pretty basic back then. Like never cow called. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, that obviously progressed a bit. I left the Kootenays probably when the hunting was really getting good. And I actually left the Kootenays right uh, as they opened up the West Kootenay elk hunt to a general open season. And for those right. of your listeners who might not know, that was like a really kind of trophy area for elk. And it was always unlimited entry. And uh, there was huge bulls and, and good elk hunting. And so I sort of missed the boat on that, unfortunately. Um, and then my next stop for elk hunting was Prince George 
which yeah in mm -hmm. central B bc not really known as like great elk country and certainly wasn't then when i got there in like 2006 but there were little pockets of elk around and uh that was yeah tough hunting really low density um really few encounters uh we killed a few bulls there but it was, i certainly wouldn't call it great elk hunting by any means it maybe it's gotten a bit better now i haven't been back really um so that was yeah just a completely different style of hunting and just getting used to very minimal sign <laughs> encounters with elk so that was kind of tough but then uh i'd already sort of caught wind that the peace region was probably a little bit better even before i moved up here and uh, yeah and then when i did move up here in 2015 uh yeah i was kind of blown away uh, by the elk hunting opportunities here they're they're just so widespread and there's just so much country that elk are in and yeah some great densities of elk maybe not the size of elk up here compared to some places in the Kootenays but I I've just had yeah, incredible experiences hunting elk, elk up here in the peace and uh yeah, as far as tactics, like I've I've gone back and forth. I'm like, oh, this year I'm going heavy on the bugle, and sometimes that works, but a lot of the time it doesn't. And I go back and forth, and then like now I've gone really flipped back to more like a heavy cow calling strategy, um, trying to lean on the bugle as little as possible. Like maybe I use the bugle as sort of a locator to find elk, mm -hmm. and then I try now to do it all with the cow call if I can, and uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes it's a little less exciting getting in a bugling match, but it's just, uh, I find there's just a lot less that can go wrong when you're just cow calling and using the right sort of cow vocalizations to coax that bull in as, as opposed to trying to fight a bull, basically, where, you know, at the end of the day, most of those bulls don't want to fight. And when, you know, I hunt in some pretty thick country, so it's a lot to ask to bugle in a bull and to get them in, coming in close, getting right. To, to fight you basically sight unseen right at close quarters most of them are going to chicken out even if i pretend to be a smaller bull if they're coming in and they still you know they're 30 yards 20 yards and they still don't see you um mm -hmm. you know most of the time they turn or hang up and so the bugling has you know it's worked in some situations of course but now i'm i'm going to revert back to the cow calling i think and i actually bought a, a cow decoy this year which was the Kind of a new trick in my arsenal and had some success with that actually this year too the first time i, used right? it, I, yeah. I, I killed the bull so um yeah that's kind of where i'm at these days yeah that's cool i think you know when we did our elk camp one of our um, one of our guests um meant you know he i can't remember the statement or which guest it was exactly but his point was you know it's easier and more i guess more of a um, gives you more options if you locate with a bugle and then work the work the bull as much as you can with cow calls calf calls get close and then if need be you can always go back to the bugle at the very end mm -hmm. like the to you know push them over the edge or whatever yeah. where on the flip side it's a little more difficult to go full-on bugle 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 right up to the you know the hang up at 100 yards and then try and call him in with a cow which does work but like i think you said i think it's a little gives you more options if you go the other route um, yeah that's a good yeah. point i mean you just got to think about what's what's a realistic scenario why would a bull be bugling 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 close and then all of a sudden a cow is coming and starts chirping like it's just a little unnatural whereas you know you could do yeah. the cow calling cow calling and then and then introduce a bugle you know 
representing another bull moving in and that's a totally mm -hmm. reasonable realistic scenario that elk would be yeah very familiar with yeah it's interesting too when you look at the uh, you know the dynamics of the different areas that we have in bc for elk hunting uh, kootenays has always been east and west have been pretty much a stronghold for a long time for like mm -hmm. you said for big big bulls and, and bulls that are um, pretty much remote for the most part, right? Backcountry bulls. You get up into the piece, you've got everything. You've got the, the backcountry, you've got mm -hmm. uh, ag agricultural lands, you've got river systems that, you know, border um, ag, ag land and backcountry. And they're, the population, and I'm not the biologist on this call, but you, you can tell me, but the population uh, of elk in the piece seems to be strong. I've I've hunted in uh, the peace country and on the BC side just this last year, most recently. And we, we had some success for Blake up there. Um, but prior to that, um, I've done a couple of uh, elk hunts on the Alberta side mm -hmm. on the piece. And that was what I noticed was just, just more opportunity to find elk and, and elk can be virtually anywhere. And if you're pressured in a spot, you just move and try another patch of crown land. And that's one thing I, I, want to point out for those that don't know i know you've you've made this comment on uh some other podcasts is you're you're a public land guy you you hunt crown land you don't you don't hunt private land all that much you fringe hunt it right around the edges yep. and stuff right so, yep yeah. that's right yeah i'm not hunting any private land up here these days maybe for coyotes a bit in the winter or something like that but uh no it's all crown land yeah like you say there's no shortage of it up here sometimes access is a little tricky in and around some of these agricultural areas but uh, generally mm -hmm. you can get to that crown land and yeah like you say the elk are so abundant and widely distributed it's almost hard to narrow it down like where to go um, and there's mm -hmm. no it's not like the Kootenays where you have really distinguishable elk habitat and features whereas up here like everything kind of like from an aerial or satellite image like it all sort of looks the same so it's mm -hmm. kind of hard to find those those pockets, well, I say pockets, I mean, they, they are kind of everywhere. So it's hard to find those zones where, you know, you're, you're really going to get into good numbers of elk. But I mean, just mm -hmm. about anywhere you get off roads or close to a river and get into some good timber, like there, there's probably elk there. Um, what When you, this year, you guys, uh, Blake, you got your elk there. Did you guys cow call that in or did you, were you bugling? Um, yeah. Uh, in that scenario, I think we did a lot of bugling, actually. We did a... Oh, yeah. um, the we kind of had like four bulls that we were messing around with that morning the um the first one we did a calf call and a bull fired off down in the creek down below us and so we we ended up working that one for i don't know dad what was that probably an hour and a half or so you'd say yeah at least that hour and a half yeah yeah and yeah. he was in a spot where you know you can get it was very kootenai like let's just put mm -hmm. it that way where sure. this bull was hung up we got down to him. I don't know. What do you think? Like hundred yards from him at some point. And yeah, we, we there was just the way the wind and thermals were working. We could not get any closer and he wouldn't come out, but mm -hmm. I'll let Blake tell the rest of the story. Cause you know, he was the Blake was the, uh, the key point in this whole hunt. I was, right. I was the caller, but Blake made the big decisions. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean that one, I don't know. We played with it for a while and then, it, you know, it just wasn't, he, that, that bull had just kind of taken off down the Creek Valley. And so we backed out, climbed out of the Creek Valley and we're just kind of walking the, I think we were on a, I don't know if it was some kind of cut line or something from years past. It was a bit overgrown, but 
um yeah so anyway we worked our way into there and just just hit a cross trail um like a very obvious i don't know if it's deer as well like whitetail as well as uh, elk but it was like very heavily trafficked with elk uh and our plan was to go like three four more k down the the seismic line or the cut line wherever we were on and um just you know when you smell elk and you just get like that feeling like we i don't know we got to check this out so i had sort of convinced dad i was like you know let's let's just cut off the trail let's just see what's here i don't know it smells elky i got a good feeling about it there was like a little uh kind of like i don't even want to say a valley just like a little kind of like divot in the land feature right there so mm. you know we were maybe 30 yards off the trail like the 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 cut line and we bumped the bull just sit bedded in the trees like mm. 30 yards from us just hopped up ran off uh you know we didn't we didn't couldn't catch a good pick like good view of it but um anyway we, we bugled he bugled back uh did, nothing really came of it and then um we we actually heard another bull bugling just kind of down the bend and so the the approach we we've been trying a few different tactics but one of them we were trying recently was just like the to come in real silent like at first so like we mm-hmm. like you say like a locator bugle kind of figure out where they are and then we really try to cut the distance down that was one of the things we were actively trying to test that and the idea of a calf call, call or something like that and it, that morning both worked um in this instance we just cut the distance real quiet as much as we could um and if i remember right i think dad you ripped a bugle uh we happened to be not knowing it we were right by like a little uh water dugout there was a a bull and a couple of cows kind of hanging around and this five point just it was so cool he just came right on a string right down this little trail uh you know 80 yards he was walking i shot him you know he was basically walking like head on to me so i just put it right on his chest and mm-hmm. um it was awesome that was like you know one of the most interactive mornings i've ever had in elk woods though for sure like there was just yeah. a lot going on Huh. Yeah, yeah, that does sound awesome. Yeah, well, congrats on your on your first bull there. I know Chuck sent me the photo there in the fall. It's yeah, pretty thanks. stoked for you guys. Yeah, yeah, it was uh it was a journey for us. I mean, we hunted um we did some all kinds of, of hunts for like seven years. We hunted the Kootenays a lot, east and west. And you know, we were the king of we were the kings of five points. <laughs> yeah. I mean yeah. there was we had so many encounters with five points where, you know, they're like right there. We, I called one in one time for Blake middle of a log block. There was one tree. We got kind of pinned. We did, a, we did a bugle and all of a sudden one bull answered and we were just right at the truck. So we tried to cut the distance and before we could get across the clear cut, this, this bull was already coming out of the tree. So we hit on this behind a rock, literally in the middle of an open clear cut with one 10 foot Christmas tree and that bull beelined it right down to the tree. What was he? Ten yards in front of us, Blake. He destroys yeah, the tree cool. for half an hour, and it was like, hmm. I mean, we could have killed him with a club, but you know, yeah, it's just, that's the story of our luck. And we did yeah. jet boat hunts, and you know, our our thing was we just we told ourselves every year, you know, we're getting better, we're learning this. We didn't have anybody teach us how to hunt elk. We just kept trying to absorb as much as we can, and. Uh, I, yeah. I kept telling Blake, you know, it'll pay off. Same as a stone sheep. We know it's coming. Yeah. You know? That's why I feel about the yeah. stone sheep. Like, um, for, like we were talking earlier, but it's like, for me, at least every year, it's like you're stacking on some kind of skill or experience that I feel like eventually the, you know, it's all going to kind of come together. But 
Uh, you don't know what you're missing until that season or that trip comes along. And it's like, oh, okay, well, there's like a really valuable lesson that comes out of this one. And I think we could apply it in a way next year that'll kind of take us to that next level. And that's partially probably what gets us so hooked on like coming back and like booking that trip right away. It's just yeah, exactly. A lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think with the with the elk hunting, um, for us, you know, our sort of aha moment happened on that morning when we shot his bull and that moment for us was you know let's let's be aggressive and cut that distance Mm -hmm. i mean we we were booking it like we probably cut that bull was maybe i don't know he was less than a kilometer from us when he when he piped off and we torched right through the bush and got to within a couple hundred yards of him in just a matter of minutes and he, the, the way it went out, went down is we were working our way towards him and he fired off. He heard us break a tree or some, or like break a twig. And then I just fired one bugle off after initially locating him. And like Blake said, just like on a, on a yo-yo, he came right in. And that for us was our kind of our like defining moment. It's like, you know, let's, you, sometimes you got to be aggressive. And I think that's one of our goals this year too for, for some of our other hunts is we're just going to, we're going to push the envelope a little bit more, uh, try not to be so conservative. So anyway, what I was going to ask you, one of my questions was, is, was there a moment in time for you with elk, your elk hunting career where you had that kind of aha moment where you realized, Oh, maybe I'm doing something different or I could try something. Was there anything like that? Um, yeah, a bit. I mean, yeah, I'm sure I like, I've, yeah learned a lot and still get schooled every year so i'm learning something every year i feel like when i'm hunting elk i think maybe one of the more important lessons like in recent years as we we learn more and there's a lot of great experts out there on elk calling and um and teaching us like what all these different uh, vocalizations mean and with these like subtle differences in tone and i just i've taken upon myself to not like i just won't make a sound without a real intention behind that sound you know like every calf call cow call whether it's like a gathering new or a lost cow like every call now that i make has a specific message that i'm relaying i'm not like i i probably used to just go around and bugle here and cow call here and mew and chirp without a real plan behind it i guess you'd say like i'm just way more intentional with my calling now and i think that's important because what whatever you're saying out there has to make sense to an elk and it's you know it's all about Mm -hmm. creating those realistic scenarios and just uh making sense not not being out there talking gibberish because you're talking a language that we don't fully understand but i mean we know some of the things we're trying to say and relate to those elk so it's just being really cognizant of of what i'm saying to those elk that i think uh, has increased my calling success yeah, yeah, I can tell you, um, if in my, uh, I have kind of an unrelated sort of daily um, correlation to that. I travel internationally for work. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I hit about 15, 20 countries a year for work. And I can tell you, if you don't know the language, you're better off just shutting up. Because <laughs> you're just <laughs> yeah. going to make a fool of yourself. Yeah. You're going to say something stupid or it doesn't mean any sense, anything or you know, you're going to insult them. And, and you're right. That really does apply to elk hunting because, you know, they're, they're smart animals. If they're sitting there and they hear you say something completely stupid, you know, they're like, well, I'm not saying nothing. The gig mm-hmm. is up, right? So, mm-hmm. exactly. Blake, Blake, you had a question you wanted to ask Mike, I think. 
Yeah, I was just going to ask you, Mike. Like you, uh, you got a nice bull early September this this past season. I was going to like, uh, what worked for you that morning or that afternoon when you were hunting it? You mentioned you had a cow decoy you were playing around with. But did that mm. come into play for the for that particular hunt? Yeah, it did actually. And yeah, that was like pretty early in September. I think it was the fourth or fifth. Like I don't usually hunt real hard that first week of September. I can I find it can be hit or miss. I don't know up here in the piece this year though. Lots of people were having success early for whatever reason. The bo- the bulls were really active and vocal. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, that morning. Well, I had got there the night before. We had just got back from our stone sheep hunt. I think I had a day to go out and check all my whitetail cameras and then the next day bobby the dog and i we, we headed out to uh one of our favorite elk spots and camped out and set up camp that evening i went out for an evening hunt and got up onto one of my favorite hills and heard a bull bugle a couple times below me wasn't super fired up wasn't coming in or anything so i just left him and uh, yeah the next morning came back on a first light and as i was hiking in um could hear at least two bulls bugling back and forth to each other and i know this area quite well now and i know all the sort of the trail networks and stuff so i knew roughly where they were and actually there was actually a pretty big meadow there like the only meadow around like generally it's just a real jungle there like it's so thick i I don't even take binoculars when i hunt elk in there um because you know you're only ever counting points or looking at elk like 30 yards or less it seems so Anyway, but I knew they were around this meadow, and I thought, well, maybe there's an opportunity I could get one in the open there. And so I crept in. Yeah, I didn't make any noises, but I could hear them bugling across the meadow to each other. And then there was another bull bugling behind me on the ridge. And so it was a good morning. It had rained a little bit, and the bulls were fired up, I think. And anyway, I got to the edge of this meadow, and they were still bugling. So I had a really good idea of where they were at. And um, yeah, I, I broke out this decoy for the first time. It's just one of those, actually, they're made for archery. Um, some, some of your listeners are probably familiar where you put your bow right through the hole in the decoy, and then you hold that decoy in front of your bow. And I kind of tweaked it so you could actually mount it on a rifle um, and walk around with it, potentially. And I put little drawstrings on it so I could flick the ears and everything to make it as realistic as possible. But you're a, anyway, you're an elk puppeteer now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, in this That's case, awesome. I, I yeah, I didn't do that. I just hung it in this uh, spruce, kind of this swamp spruce behind me, kind of behind a few branches, so it was kind of uh, obscured a little bit. And um, but it was only maybe ten feet behind me, and I just stepped off to the side behind another black spruce. Uh, got the dog to lay down, and then uh, yeah, just did a couple uh, gathering cow mews um both bulls responded right away so i knew that was a good sign that they were both kind of interested in me and so i felt it was kind of a matter of first come first serve and um yeah i could hear the bull that was closest to the meadow along the edge of the meadow coming in and yeah i could tell he was interested and he was he was coming and then i could start seeing him through the black spruce on the edge of the swamp and uh he yeah we got into kind of a visual area and i'm quite sure he he locked onto that decoy and was seeing it and at that point i'm not you know by the time there you can make a visual i I think i stopped calling completely at that point because that tends to backfire usually at that point so just just let him come he's already curious he's going to come look for it and he was coming head on head on but he was always even though we're kind of on the edge of this big meadow he was always behind some of these black spruce and he got to about 20 yards uh right behind a spruce tree 
and then it was kind of decision time for him. He was either going to turn right and go straight into the, the timber and I'd never see him, or he's going to turn left and be broadside 20 yards right out in the meadow. And most, most often than not, it doesn't work this way, but this time he chose to go left and stepped out broadside 20 yards. And I had my little 4570 bush gun with a little one to four power scope on it. And that was pretty pretty easy pickings and that was that so yeah pretty it was a real nice start to elk season and you may have seen if you saw some of the videos i you know i went and found that dead bull and but the elk the other elk across the meadow just kept bugling and i was able to actually call him right out into the meadow too right after as i was standing at the dead bull so they they were fired up that morning yeah they, yeah that's that footage i remember that that's pretty cool your dog was standing right there with you too right yeah that that's right yeah yeah, yeah. That's cool. Um, so a question for you on that. So if if that bull would have taken a step the wrong way, which you're lucky you went the right way, what would you have done? What was your next play? Cow call, try to chirp him back in, or what would you do there? Yeah, probably. I think that's all I would have done at that point. Like, yeah. I wouldn't have bugled or anything like that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, like, if he stepped in, I, I know he wasn't. It'd be one thing if he ran off, like if he caught wind of me or saw something he didn't like, then probably hooped. But if he just stepped into the bush line there, I bet I could have probably just snuck around that tree and got a sight line to the edge where he went. And I bet I could have probably coaxed him mm -hmm. back out because he was, he was pretty curious. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. That was a beautiful bull too, by the way. Congratulations. Oh, thanks. Yeah. It was uh yeah. Nice way to start. Pressure was off the meat on that bull. Like he was still quite fat and he's not a real old bull. Like the meat's been just unbelievable. And uh, it, it had been pretty hot up to that point, but it was pretty cool um, for a couple of days there. So I was able to, it took me a couple of days to pack them out. Um, but uh, yeah, the meat's been great. So pretty happy about that. Yeah. Well, we're, we're enjoying uh, Blake's elk. I was able to get a no, nice young bull moose bull moose as well and i can tell you man we're eating good this winter it's yeah, been awesome I'm kidding. Yeah. Still, you keep fingers crossed it's like hopefully we have another good year this year so, yeah um i have a question or two for you on uh, on the area or on scouting not on the area but um as far as uh finding areas luckily you know you live there year round so and you can literally you're where you live you can go four directions and be an elk you know pretty short order um what uh you know what's your process look like for finding areas are you doing an e-scouting with with deer i, I think i heard i, I kind of know your answer but as far as elk go up there what's your tactic with finding the spots yeah it was uh it started all pretty heavy on the e-scouting i think like i i found this one of my favorite spots like the first year I moved up here, just looking at maps, I had kind of heard word of a, like a couple general areas to start looking and um, yeah, definitely heavy on the, the, the maps. I spent a lot of time looking at Google Earth or Fat Maps or iHunter or any of those different apps or platforms. And, um, mm -hmm. but like I say, a lot of the country up here does look the same. Like if you're out in this foothill country, so you don't really know until you get in there. Like some places I've looked at, from the uh, imagery that looks great and I go in there and it turns out like maybe it's like a cattle grazing license area and it's been grazed heavy and you know the timber looks good but when you get underneath there's no no elk food left in there and so right uh, as, as an example but yeah it's really just finding those areas and then I look for a few key features like usually around some sort of water and a mix of timber like there's a lot of deciduous timber up here so 
I kind of look mm -hmm. for those patches that have some coniferous mixed in as well. Whereas mm -hmm. a lot of other places of the province, like the Kootenays, it's a lot of coniferous and you often kind of look for those deciduous patches to find the elk in. So it's sort of backwards up here in some cases, but uh, yeah, then just a matter. I just try to get out. Like I spend way more time out in the spring and summer than I probably do in the fall. And I'm pretty lucky just living close by. And all these areas are like, you know, a few hours from town at most. Um, yeah. So pretty lucky that way. And hanging cameras and putting out some salt mm -hmm. just to get some photos and videos. And you start to kind of mm -hmm. piece it together. And for me, like in a lot of these elk spots, it's like the first time you go in there, you think you kind of know, got it figured. And yeah, but when you get in there and suddenly, okay, you hear the elk bugling another kilometer away. So then you push into that kilometer and hunt that year. And then the next year you come back, push a kilometer the in, spot. and then you, they're like, or yeah, or they're a little farther back where they're down here. And you just sort of start expanding your, mm -hmm. your uh, network of trails and spots. And um, generally, the uglier country I get into around here, um, the better the elk hunting is. Yeah, and if you've got some barriers to keep um, ATV traffic down, mm -hmm. um, that list gets shorter and shorter up there, right? Because yeah, you know, a lot of guys I noticed that too in the during hunting season that you know the moment you eliminate the ATV out of the equation, um, you know there's just a lot more opportunity if you're willing to hike. I think yep. we were what we we were what six k back. Like you're not getting an ATV yeah. back in where we were, right? And you know we did we got we were really only one one real day of hunting, but um, just an observation. You know, it's like there was no ATV tracks back there, but mm -hmm. it's good. So, do you use a lot of cameras for elk? I know you do for whitetail, but um, do you hang a lot of elk cameras? Yeah, quite a bit. I usually start put. I don't put them out till a bit later. Like I like to hang cameras on wallows. Is sort of my favorite. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. It's not necessarily to enhance my hunting luck or anything like that. It's more just, I just love getting camera footage. It's almost like a side hobby at this point, but, um, yeah, I definitely put out, I'll probably have, you know, you know, anywhere from seven to nine, just like elk specific cameras out in the fall. And mm -hmm. usually they're on wallows or big trails or maybe a salt lick. Um, yeah. And so that's, those wallows get really busy kind of at the end of August and that first week of September. Um, it is a good way to get sort of an inventory of the bulls in your area. I find that those big wallows, all the bulls come through at some point um, to, yeah. uh, you know, they do some rubbing and scent checking there and just, you know, getting water and rubbing around. So you kind of, you get a pretty good idea of who's in the area. Most of these areas I hunt, like I know there's where there's like two or three key wallows that I'll hang cameras on and, um, mm -hmm. yeah, get, get a pretty good sense of who's around and get some pretty cool footage at the same time. Yeah. I'll say you've got some awesome footage. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, I saw the one video with the uh, cougar. Is that a lick that, oh. that happened on, or was that a wallow or both? That actually, that was a wallow, but this year was so dry up here in the, in the summer and fall that a lot, I will pretty much every one of my wallows that, you know, have been consistent muddy wet holes were bone dry this year. So my footage right. was a, was a little different this year, but that I still hung some cameras on those dry walls and the elk still come through there and there's big trails and everything. So, but yeah, that was, uh, yeah, that was cool. One of the more interesting things I've captured on camera. Uh, we, I don't get a lot of cougar images on camera up here. A few more in, in recent years. I think maybe I had three different cougars on camera this year, but yeah, that one was, yeah, just surprised. Like I've, uh, 
cat came down a trail into that dry wallow area and lingered around for a bit and then of course it goes to the next clip and the cat's just sitting there and all of a sudden there's a six point bull elk just in the background just kind of behind some uh, alder there and uh yeah that cat launches out of that wallow over a log and goes after that big elk and you can actually if you listen closely you can hear the elk roar as it's running away yeah. i imagine that cat probably got on its back for a second um mm-hmm. but then maybe one or two clips later you see that cat come walking back and obviously was a wasn't a successful attempt but yeah pretty pretty cool footage anyway that's the thing about cameras you just never know what you'll get on exactly there. yeah it's crazy that i just was scrolling through I'd, i've been on your instagram quite a bit over the over the last year or so but i somehow missed that one and i was kind of refreshing today and i'm like well oh, that's gold that is absolute gold and then yeah. uh blake and i were chatting to him in about the uh like the wallow cam uh compilations that you do with the screaming bulls i mean that's uh that's elk bugling 101 right there if you just listen to mike's instagram video oh, yeah. So, yeah off the trail cams it's crazy yeah you hear you'll hear all kinds of bugling going on they love those sites and they obviously they get pretty fired up at those wallows and we're rolling around yeah. and bugling and all that yeah exactly um so white-tailed deer i know that like you said that's sort of a newer newish obsession for you mm-hmm. um you did a you did a really good podcast with uh dylan and eat wild um talking about chuck the buck and thank you for oh, yeah. naming your your nice deer <laughs> after me I, I didn't know you were such a fanboy on that but yeah that, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah you know you inspired me <laughs> i must have <laughs> well uh yeah. how how long were you uh targeting that buck was it just one season or did, were you watching him for a couple of years yeah not very long at all actually i mean that's kind of the the interesting thing with hunting these whitetails up here and hanging cameras and all that is you know there's some bucks for sure that we're watching you know watching for a few years in a row several years in some cases um but yeah in november any given day like a new buck can show up and mm-hmm. a lot of the time they show up once and keep on moving but i think if you set up a good reason you know of course in this case like a, a lot of us are baiting as a tactic for hunting whitetails up here in the piece and if you set up yeah. a good a good bait station if you want to call it that or just a nice scenario of, of food and cover and having does around like i think you can get some of those transient bucks to stick around so uh i i first i checked that camera I mean, you know i check that camera probably every few days or every week you know at the, the longest i have several sites that i kind of circulate around and but i checked that mm-hmm. camera and had pictures of that buck chuck um i think just two or three days prior and had never seen him before and uh but he had been there for a few days leading up to when i checked and he was there in daylight and nighttime so that's a good sign especially getting daylight photos of a deer like that um and then he was he was on video and some of the scrapes nearby too so he was working the area and then it was just a matter of putting in the time and hoping he was still there and um i really i think i only hunted maybe two and a half days for him excuse me and he was mm-hmm. uh, yeah still in the area came in one morning 10 o'clock nine or something like that and um yeah that was it i mean he he almost evaded me at first he actually came in and ran away for some unknown reason like as soon as he got to the edge of sort of my shooting lane there i thought i may never mm-hmm. see him again but my wind was good and i like i was pretty sure he didn't smell me and 
I was in the blind and pretty sure he didn't see anything. And so I'm not sure what spooked him, but a minute later he, he had come right back in and I was able to, able to get yeah, him. Yeah, you so, just, you had just gotten there, right? Just gotten the blind. Of, yeah. Just, before just that, snuck right? in. I actually got stuck behind the blind for, for actually like two hours that morning. Cause there was deer on the bait and deer mingling around and little bucks chasing does and everything. And I couldn't close that final 80 yards to the blind without spooking deer and, in my opinion, like spooking deer off of those sites is, you know, is death by a thousand cuts. Like you just, every time you mm -hmm. bump a deer, like you think, you know, it's going to get worse and worse in there. So I didn't want to spook any deer, whether it was a doe or a little buck. So I sat back on a stump in the snow for like two hours, finally had a window where I thought I could sneak in, but you know, I'm trying to get in quickly, but quietly. And, uh, you know, at any time something could come in, I could spook it. And but I got into the blind on my chair i got the gun kind of propped up and i you know if i mentioned that on that podcast with dylan like i hadn't even closed the blind door behind me sat down mm -hmm. and i see deer movement so i mean it was really a matter of seconds um had it been 20 seconds later i still would have been walking to the blind you would have busted me and you know it'd be a totally different story uh, but yeah just amazing how the the timing works so you guys know what it's like hunting like timing is everything where there's lucky or unlucky so i was lucky that day yeah for sure and again with those those savvy whitetail bucks the older they are you know it, it does sometimes it's not it's not smell it's not sight it's not hearing it's just a gut feeling something's not right yeah yeah, yeah who knows you know, who knows what they sense but yeah i mean then with bucks like that sometimes you well most often you only get one chance you, you screw something up you may never come back yeah, exactly. Now, Blake, you had uh, you had a question for Mike about um, developing spots, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm going through that right now, not for whitetail, but uh, blacktail deer. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know. I was kind of curious just like how much time you, you've put in, like, for example, the spot there with uh, the, the buck chuck there. Like, is that a spot you've worked for, you know, a number of years and have kind of learned? Or is it something that like, you just kind of recently stumble upon like um how often do you like find new spots versus just working ones that you have prior years of knowledge on sure yeah well that particular area like a broader area i've probably been in there for four years and that particular site was just the second year being set up and hunting in there but it had sort of been nearby and had had good hunting nearby but was just really trying to like refine my site with all the kind of the right characteristics that i like and all the access being spot on and all that so found that spot got it all set up and yeah we you know there's it was good uh, two years ago and it, it was good action in there again this year so that site's been going for a couple of years i've got a couple others that yeah i've probably been four years at the exact same site same setup um but i i definitely uh I'm always looking to sort of expand or looking for greener pastures. Like I, as soon as I cut a tag or whatever, I'm out looking for new spots and uh, yeah, kind of rotating, I guess. I don't know. There's a few spots that I have that have been good, like good deer activity, but just not seeing like the mature bucks for maybe two or three years now. And I'll probably abandon those sites and maybe move only, you know, four or five kilometers, try something different. Um, but yeah, it, it's tough to say exactly what the strategy is there, but w when you find those like 
good sites. Like there's a few two or three sites that I know I'll, I'll always have yeah. and always hunt and just keep them operating. But apart from those core two or three, then yeah, I'm looking for all these other like peripheral ones that I hope will also turn into a keeper. Um, that's a lot of the fun of it. Like, you know, it, it's just a lot of the fun is just exploring and hanging the cameras there and, and just seeing if these new sites pay off. I mean, it's a lot of time and, and work, but it's a good excuse to get out in this. Like as soon as the snow melts, I, I try to get out and keeps me busy all spring and summer, which is nice. Yeah. What's the, um, like how many cams would you run at one time? Like, uh, just across all your spots, like, do you have quite a network going or do you just actively move them around? Yeah, I've got a like a decent number, maybe like way less than some, but I at the most I'd have like twenty cameras out between elk and deer um, at any given time. So probably like yeah, in August and September I've got all the deer cameras out and got all the elk cameras out. And then once September is over, I'll go pull pull all those elk cameras and then start putting them around as extra cameras around all the deer sites. But yeah, mm -hmm. usually you know eighteen to I've got like twenty cameras now that are really good reliable cameras i always just try to kind of upgrade a few every year and um and kind of weed out some of the ones that maybe give me issues or some of the older models so i, I try to i have i guess that i you know i have quite a few but i'm yeah it's really become a sort of a side hobby side obsession of mine it's not even like always tied to hunting necessarily. I, yeah. i'll hang cameras in places sure. i don't even hunt I, I enjoy it so much yeah yeah i, I mean, that. yeah blake is uh Blake started on the camera thing here a couple of years mm -hmm. back and he's gotten me hooked now. And yeah, I don't know. We got, we've got over 20 out on any mm -hmm. given season now too for elk and blacktail and stuff. I'm not a big blacktail hunter, but Blake keeps dragging me into the rain to hunt these little deer. I guess we're going <laughs> to, yeah. we're going to figure it out one of these days. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, with regards to cameras, what, uh, what do you, I mean, what do you find works best for you as far as like the, you said you're upgrading. What are you, what are you running for cams that you like? Yeah, I, I pretty much exclusively use Brownings. Um, mm -hmm. I have no, I'm not uh, sponsored or anything like that. So I have no reason. I've just liked them. They've been good to me. I've had good product service with them. And um, so that, mm -hmm. that's been nice too, but I've had very few issues with the Brownings. Um, they seem to be good quality reliable cameras like they're probably mid-range right like you're not paying crazy amount of money but they're not the cheaper end too so they're mm -hmm. a moderately priced camera but um, some of the like the pro models i like quite a bit that take the the full 1080 hd videos and the sounds good and um yeah i've had good luck with them i go pretty like pretty all out on my setups i guess like i hate the idea of either losing a camera or having like a bear or elk knock the camera around. So I've got security boxes on all my cameras. I use the strap that comes with the cameras to, you know, do the initial strapping of the tree. Then I use a ratchet strap around the whole security box and ratchet it on. So a bear elk isn't budging that camera. And then I'll run a cable lock through it as well. Mm -hmm. So Wow. It takes a lot of work. I've never lost a cam. I've never had one stolen. I had one guy take an axe to a camera once. Um, that's the only camera I've ever lost. Um, but <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I just, I, I mean, I don't want to, it's not even so much the camera. I'm more, I'm more concerned about losing the content on the camera. Like the idea of losing a month yeah. of like elk pictures or a week of deer pictures at a bait with that. If I ever lost that card or something that the idea that makes me sick. So I go, I kind of go all out to try to secure those things. Mm -hmm. Where are you buying your batteries? 
Ah, well, I mean, I kind of buy these, I've transitioned fully to lithiums. Like I'm totally bought onto the lithium uh, program yeah. for a few different reasons. Uh, just the, the way they perform and the higher power output and the longevity, of course, too. But uh, I learned a few things about batteries from talking to the, uh, the Browning uh, staff, actually. So, yeah, I've been running these Energizer lithiums. Uh, but, I yeah, I caught wind of... Uh, a local guy here I'm forgetting his name uh, in BC that is working on his own or has access to his own sort of brand of lithium batteries that I'm, I'm, I'm gonna talk a bit more about with him I don't know if you know who I'm talking about but is, is that no I don't oh, no. okay I'll uh, yeah, yeah I'll no, look into that cool yeah we uh, I found a, I found a bulk distributor I think out of Ontario I can't remember the name I posted something on spike camp about it and it, you know, it's not a huge savings, but it was definitely cheaper than trying to, you know, pick them up at Walmart or something. But yeah, yeah that's yeah, the one thing, right? I mean, they're expensive. Yeah, it's they're really expensive. expensive. And you don't know, the problem with lithiums is they don't read very well on the camera battery um, display. Because with right. lithiums, they put out high output pretty much to the day they die. So your camera shows they're always like at 100% pretty much. So Until you don't know. <laughs> yeah, until they're not. So you may have fresh batteries you think are good there and you leave it and then it dies a day later. So now I've actually bought like a, a lithium battery tester specific to, to testing lithium. So I can go out and mm -hmm. see how much life I have in those lithiums and whether I can leave them or pull them and swap them out there. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, and I was just I was just looking at one of the comments there uh, around uh, cell service and import picks to your cell. So, yeah, I'm not sure if that uh, that. Uh, whoever wrote that comments from BC or that's, not, but of course, yeah, in BC, we can't use clay. those. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We can't use those cell cameras during hunting seasons. Um, I don't have any of those. cell. I like the idea of having those maybe outside of hunting seasons to get some um, cellular photos sent to you, but I don't have any, uh, any cellular cameras. No. Yeah. And I, I have played around with the cell cams a little bit. We've got a, you know, I put them on my property. So I got two kind mm -hmm. of, you know, uh, interior properties and, and they're fine. But then, uh, you know, they, when they don't work, they don't work. I, I've never really found them to be all that efficient. Okay. Um, and I think the other side of, for me anyway, and I know Blake's the same. Um, I mean, the real fun when you turn trail cam camera hunting or trail camming into a hobby out, you know, within or outside of hunting, um, pulling the cards and seeing what's on them is the funnest part right it's like it's like christmas it's going for a yeah. christmas walk yeah, totally. yeah. <laughs> you're gonna go out and pull them yeah yeah and cool. it can be equally as crushing or disappointing when you go there and you have high hopes and something's gone wrong that's yeah. why i'm oh, so yeah. so anal about my setups like to try to limit that happening but inevitably like something will happen and the card malfunctions mm -hmm. or the camera or something or you missed it, cutting one limb that's triggers a whole bunch of wind events and fills up your card but so that's always yeah disappointing or crushing but yeah the anticipation like you said it's like being a kid on christmas yeah and then the other side of it is when you have uh, an awesome bull elk on your camera as recently as three days prior to you being there right at the same time and then you get home that night and uh, scroll through instagram and see a picture of somebody holding that bull by the oh. horns also a yeah. heartbreaker right blake yeah yeah <laughs> we don't that well, i just got over that so i don't know if yeah. I, I should have brought that up or not but sounds like that one um, uh, yeah hits close to home for you <laughs> yeah a little bit um 
are you running strictly video or do you mix it up with stills and video on your cams yeah both for sure like at any of the salt or bait sites it's all photos because like mm -hmm. those animals will linger there for hours and hours and if you put it on video mode yeah you're and if, unless you're checking yeah. them like every day like you're gonna fill up your card or you're gonna kill your battery um so mm -hmm. yeah definitely pictures at all those sites where there's an attractant um because yeah, especially with the moose up here like they love to lay at a, a site all night long they just bed right on your minerals or whatever and so you'll get a thousand picks of, of one moose um but yeah on trails scrapes wallows i like i really like the video mode mm -hmm. yeah it's it's certainly entertaining when you can do that and like you said you don't want to you don't want to turn a uh, salt lick into a, a feature film of a moose rolling around all yeah. night long. Right? I know. So, yeah. Uh, awesome. Um, any advice you can offer the, the trail cameras that are starting out? Any, any tips that'll save you some time or money? Yeah. I mean, I, like you don't have to buy expensive cameras. Like I know there's some cheaper models out there and that's probably a good way to start. You know, the, the photo quality and the video quality may not be as good, but if, if something goes wrong or you, you know, you, you end up losing one, at least you're not out several hundred bucks, but um, yeah, I'd look at those kind of moderately priced. I can, you can get good cameras in that sort of $200 range and um, yeah, get a good size memory card. Like most of them take pretty large memory cards now, so you can fill up with lots of photos and, um yeah the placement i guess is probably the key thing like obviously placing it yeah. on some sort of feature that you're going to get some activity whether that's a trail or a scrape or a wallow like we've talked about um and then i guess my advice would be kind of what i touched on was is setting it up pretty securely uh going out into the the field of view and cutting any limbs branches that might be moving in the wind uh long grass or whatever because the the wind disturbance if you if that triggers every time the wind blows, you'll fill up your camera card pretty quickly and that'll be frustrating. And then, yeah, I would secure, like if there's bears around and elk too are pretty hard on cameras, uh, the other animals seem to kind of leave them alone for the most part, um, but elk will definitely rub on them and bears will definitely try to rip them off. So try to attach it pretty securely so they can't like spin it around the other side of the tree because that can also happen you get there been sitting there for a month and you're excited to go check it and it's pointing the wrong direction on the backside of the tree that can be frustrating and then yeah, i don't know sure. i mean i'd lock i'd lock up my cameras um i yeah i'm still amazed at how many like i find cameras here and there in the woods and some of them are just like tied on by a shoestring <laughs> you can i mean yeah. animal could take them a person could take them the cards are accessible like i i don't know i'm a little more it's just a little more cautious about my setup so i i yeah. recommend locking them up and ratcheting them down to a tree yeah that's good stuff i never thought of the ratchet but that does make a lot of sense because yeah those uh some of those animals are pretty tough on them i've seen mm -hmm. uh, moose beat the crap out of our cameras at the lake okay. before and you know crush them and you know lick them and move them around and whatever yeah. else right so yeah um well this isn't trail cam related but i kind of wanted to ask you if about your uh, wolf camera footage that mm. you have and that's a work related one and i know you said it was a research project that you did mm. maybe tell us a little bit about that because that that's absolutely fascinating when you watch those that footage the clips of the wolves they're awesome yeah yeah and those are like some highlight reels uh, like distilled down from 
tens and tens of thousands of videos that aren't very good on those cameras and like distilling it down to so like a select highlight reel of cool footage and yeah just for like your listeners you're talking about these cameras that uh, so in my work i do a, a bit of uh, research on wolves that includes collaring wolves radio collaring and there's some technology out there that has uh, a camera can, well, you can use it as a still camera or a video camera embedded in the housing of the collar that sits underneath the chin of the wolf. So it's kind of new technology. So I had the opportunity to sort of demo these cameras on wolves, like they hadn't really been used on wolves before. And um, so I've been deploying, I usually deploy two or three every winter just to, to test. And the idea is, you know, that if they function really well, you could potentially uh, plan a whole research study around those cameras and like and the footage that sure. you're capturing, whether that's like prey selection or uh, well, a whole host of different things you could be looking at or kill rates, things like that. So, um, yeah, when they work they're I mean, they give a perspective that you just never get to see otherwise. But there are some challenges like up here in the deep snow, like the lens will get packed with snow and you won't see anything for two days. Um, had issue with moisture getting into the cameras and things like that. So had quite a few mm-hmm. fail on me as well, but the ones that have worked um, have revealed some pretty cool footage of, yeah, just the whole pack dynamics, a bit of interaction with prey. Like I still haven't got an actual kill um, on video. Uh, I'm hoping to capture that one day, but the way I've got them set up is so that they're triggered by high activity. So there's an accelerometer in the, the camera. So when okay. I, the way I've got them set up is when that wolf runs hard for a period of time, say like 10 seconds, then it trips, it pa- surpasses the threshold that's built into the accelerometer, and then it triggers a series of videos for say like the next 10 minutes afterwards, maybe 30 second video clips every every minute for the next 15 minutes. I mean, there's a million ways you can set them up. That's how I've tried to set mine wow. up. And um, yeah. It, Got some really cool footage. Again, though, I mean, when you get the camera back, uh, you have to go physically get that camera back, and then generally you're you're sifting through thousands and thousands of videos, and most of them aren't very good. <laughs> like a lot of yeah, obscure, exactly. like with snow or fog, and or you know, some sometimes they go off at night, which they're not supposed to, but they do anyway. So, but yeah, every once in a while you'll find some really cool clips and nice footage and. Uh, yeah, so they're, yeah, interesting research tool. Technology still needs some work before I would plan a whole research study around them personally, but uh, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, keep keep trying them. What's the coolest thing you've seen on those cameras? Um, well, like some interactions, we had uh, a pack collar that was like a, a pack of about 10 wolves. And I think seeing that social dynamics inside the pack that you, other, you otherwise would never really see, like um, we had it, we had the breeding male collared. So there was a lot, a lot of the wolves come to that breeding male and, you know, kind of act mm-hmm. like your dog does when it comes to greets. Yeah. Like it's trying to lick you on the face and all that. Like, so mm-hmm. see some of that interaction. I'm not trying to make a connection between wolves and, and pet dogs here at all, but you see some interesting kind of social dynamic Um so seeing that was pretty neat and then yeah some glimpses of hunting behavior like i've I've got clips of them chasing moose or chasing bison as well actually um but how still haven't got that actual kill on on camera but um that's pretty cool i've seen them you know there's lots of videos of them eating prey that was killed that the videos didn't capture unfortunately or 
carrying like I've got video of them carrying like a, a neonate moose calf. Um, there's some footage of them carrying like brand new pups. I don't know if they were moving them from one den to another, but there's a little footage of that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, just some like behind the closed doors kind of footage that you'd, you'd never really get to mm -hmm. witness uh, from wolves otherwise. Yeah. It's kind of a behind the curtain look at a life of a wolf, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating, and uh, you'll have to keep us posted on that as the technology improves, because that's going to be, uh, I think it's going to be a real valuable tool for for you, especially for for your field work, and um, wolves are such a, a interesting topic these days, and, mm -hmm. um, you know, and the more we learn about them, I think the better we'll be as far as hunters and conservationists, right? So, yep, for that's sure. cool. Um, well, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about, um, guns and gear. As you can tell, the podcast flies, man. We're at about an, almost an hour and a half already. And there's, um, there's a ton of things we could talk about. Um, I noticed you, you mentioned, um, close range, heavy calibers for elk 4570 in the bush. I'm assuming that's not your sheep rifle. What do you run <laughs> for sheep? <clears throat> excuse me yeah nothing too fancy like i was telling you like i'm not a crazy gun nut or gear nut but i you know i have a few things that have worked for me over the years and um mm -hmm. i probably don't keep up with the technology like a lot of the a lot of the new sheep hunters do but i for my sheep mountain gun it's just a, a tika uh the t3 stainless you know it's been a pretty just mm -hmm affordable and reliable gun shoots well i have a nice loop old scope on there with the turret now so i'm a little more comfortable with that longer range shooting if need be i just shoot like a you know a light uh tip triple shock bullet 140 grain um a 7 mm i don't think i said the caliber that's that's kind of my go-to mountain mm -hmm. gun and i kind of i use that for a lot of the hunting now i've actually sold a few of my like my old 270 and i find that that 7 mm is just very versatile you can use it Mm -hmm. all kinds of things and so that's sort of my mountain gun nothing too fancy there um and then yeah i, I do like using that 4570 for hunting elk in the bush and then i've got some more like coyote and wolf guns and but that that's about it nothing too crazy mm -hmm. for me so is the 4570 a lever gun yeah it's that yeah. marlin it's that oh, marlin yeah. lever gun yeah it's actually one of the uh, I think I bought it probably back in 2007 or something like that. I've had a long time. It was like my old trusty guide gun, bear gun. It's been a lot mm -hmm. of places with me, taking a lot of beatings. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's a great gun. I, I love that thing. I love hunting with that gun. Yeah, and it's got uh, a very direct result if you're under a couple hundred yards when you shoot something too. Perfect yeah. elk rifle. Yeah, super effective. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So um, are you into the uh, lightweight hunting gear? rabbit hole like a lot of people are these days no probably not i uh yeah. no no i probably not like definitely not like some of your listeners or probably some of your uh your podcast guests i um i don't change my gear a ton i've got mm -hmm. some like good reliable stuff that's work i mean back when i was guiding i probably went through a lot more gear i had yeah, good connections with the companies and had you know some pretty good deals like try all the different boots try all the different rain gear um now I just stick to a few things that work well for me. I try to run them into the ground and like now that, you know, do one sheep hunt a year, like I can make that stuff last a little longer. 
uh, right. back in yeah. the guiding days, you'd go through that gear every year, basically every year you had to buy a new pair of boots. If you even made it through the season with that pair of boots. Yeah, exactly. Um, and rain gear. <laughs> yeah. Rain gear would go fast. So the rain gear still, I mean, when you, any of those brands, I found like, it's great when you have it new and the Gore-Tex is working and, but inevitably after a few years, no matter how expensive that stuff is, it's going to start letting water in. So either yeah, hope you get yeah, a good kind sure. of warranty replacement, a good company that'll just replace it for you, or, or you're going to fork out another $700 for a pair of rain pants, which is tough, a tough pill to swallow. But um, yeah. yeah, as far as other stuff, like I like a nice pack, you know, good, strong, reliable pack, good boots, good optics. Uh, I've had the mm -hmm. same Swarovski spotting scope. Um, yeah. For probably 15 years now. Um, and yeah, that, those are kind of the key pieces. Other than that, I'm just kind of tinkering with little things around like sleeping pads mm -hmm. and sleeping bags, but yeah, I'm not, uh, not crazy. And then I bring, I bring way more food than I probably need to anyway. So that kind of like cancels out the whole lightweight hunting. Yeah. I like to, I it's like to eat easy comfortably move. out there. Yeah, I know. So <laughs> I don't know. I've like, I kind of joke like our sheep hunts in the last few years have gotten more gentlemanly. Like uh, mm -hmm. we're not killing ourselves on these hunts. Like maybe I used to when I was a bit younger. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that translates to why we haven't killed sheep in a little while, but uh, I don't know. We're having fun anyway. Well, I was going to say, it you know, it translates back to the experience, and that's what you're there for. And yeah, I mean, the the food thing is a is a rabbit hole. You know, you can, mm -hmm. you know that that's where the most weight is either gained or lost, right? I think is in food. But um, yeah. is there one piece of gear that is like Mike's go to for all hunts? Like, is it clothing or obviously, you know, you're using a couple different guns, but is there one piece that's like your favorite piece? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I think like a good backpack, like I, no matter where I'm going, I'm, even if I'm hunting whitetail deer, maybe I'm packing that, that animal out in pieces. So I'm always packing like my big backpacking backpack with me. Mm -hmm. So a backpack that's sort of versatile that can, you know, cinch down nice and small and, and light for day hunts and things mm -hmm. like that, but also um where i can pack you know an elk out by myself with that pack is super important too so that's probably that's yeah, yeah that's the one thing that i take everywhere with me i never never leave at home i don't drop my pack on a mountainside either to do like a, a final stock or i don't leave like i keep my pack with me everywhere i go because you never know what might happen so i guess uh mm -hmm. yeah that would be my uh my go-to so in your um, in your uh, gentleman sheep hunting years, I see Clay <laughs> Clay's ask a question here. Are you still doing highway hunts, or are you doing plains boats, or you mix it up? Yeah, I mix up a little bit. Um, I'm trying to think. The last time we hiked off the highway it was probably a few years since we've hiked off the highway. Uh, I've done some fly-in sheep hunts as well. Uh, I haven't hunted stone sheep with horse or boat myself um definitely a nice viable option and um would love to do that one day um but for now mainly feet you know hiking off the highway or quadding mm -hmm. in some places or uh or yeah if i can fork out a bit of money for a plane ride i like to do that once in a while yeah and that's treat. not cheap anymore Man, no it's, it's so not now mm -hmm. and there's yeah. really no secrets anymore like a lot of these sheep places even if you're flying way in somewhere like there's probably other people there um or, you know like, yeah. it's, it's, it's hard to get away i guess is what i'm trying to say no matter what uh, 
mode of transportation you use these days. Sheep hunting's got so popular. Yeah, and for the most part too, even if there is other people there, you know, if you if you're able to make contact with them and come up with a a workaround so you're not tripping over each other, that's great. But mm-hmm. you still hear the stories every year of guys, you know, just doing stupid shit to try to get to the Rams first or mm-hmm. you know, screwing other guys up, but uh, yeah, you know, it's big it's big country. Let's try to play nice, right? That's kind of the way we look at it. Yeah, you know. for sure. And I that goes that's probably like the number one thing in my, I guess, strategy, if you want to call it that, for sheep hunting these days, is just trying to get away from the crowds, really. Like I just yeah, mm-hmm. I just want to be out there, just me and my partners and not see anyone. I know everyone wants that and it's not really realistic yes. all the time, but that's kind of been pushing us farther and farther away from the core sheep areas and you know, mm-hmm. so we're seeing fewer and fewer sheep, but also fewer and fewer hunters. So it's just fine trying to find that balance, I guess. Yeah. I mean, then the other side of that though, is, you know, if you're hunting fringe areas that are not as popular for other hunters, um, there's a different caliber of Ram sometimes too, that's going to be in that fringe area may, or maybe not caliber, but Rams that just don't adhere to that pressure as much. Right. So, right. Well, that's know, the theory yeah. anyway. I haven't that's uh, the theory <laughs> that to be true just yet. I'm sure some people have, but I haven't had, hasn't paid off, but uh, yeah, hopefully one day here. Right on. Hey, Blake, you, uh, do you have any questions before we start to gear down here? You had you, anything else? Um, I was curious on your hunting plans for this coming year, but uh, nothing outside of that. Yeah. What do you got planned? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Well, I think like I've gotten into quite a routine up here, although my, my life has changed a little bit up here lately. Um, so I'm, mm-hmm. I don't know if I'll have quite as much time to get out as I used to, but that's okay. I mean, that, happens to all of us eventually um but i will uh definitely as soon as spring and summer rolls around i'll start getting the cameras out and getting this spot set up for deer again and um i think it'll be yeah hoping to do a late uh, you know later august maybe early september sheep hunt straight into the elk hunting in september i generally try to work most of october and then i generally try to take most of november off for whitetails i mean one thing about you know the job i have is um, we are afforded quite a bit of days off, especially if, you know, we work extra hours in the field season and I can kind of stockpile some days off. So I, I generally have plenty of time to take off in the fall, which is very nice. So it'll be, yeah, sheep, elk, whitetail, and see what happens with LEH in the, in the meantime, but probably nothing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we know the feeling. Yeah. So maybe one day that'll change, but who knows? So. All right, I got I've got one last question for you, Mike. What's your sure. favorite wild game dish, meal, cut, whatever? Uh, hmm. well, I mean, yeah, any of these elk steaks, I like. Yeah, I like taking those back straps and you know cutting them maybe like an inch and a half thick, and I like to just sear them and butter on a hot pan and then stick them in the oven, kind of at a lower temperature to finish cooking them. But I guess that's pretty basic but one of my favorite little recipes that's kind of a treat is when i have those elk tenderloins mm-hmm. i found a recipe i think in bugle magazine years ago and it's uh, sort of a stuffed tenderloin so you take that tenderloin butterfly it um and then you you roast up a big uh Ant- is it annabelle or anaheim pepper anyway one of those big green peppers roast one of mm-hmm. those lay that in there actually and before that you lay the layer it with uh, prosciutto take that pepper, stick that pepper in there and stuff that pepper with cream cheese and cheddar 
and then wrap that all up um, you know string it together again sear it on a hot pan butter and then into the oven and then of course like season it a bit too and then into the oven and that's a pretty like decadent uh, steak um, it's yeah pretty tasty treat Oh man. So, uh, Blake, you want to, uh, pick out a nice bottle and get Lana to pick out a nice bottle of wine. I'm fueling up the truck and we're heading North for dinner. At <laughs> that sounds unbelievable. Yeah. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Bring, I don't imagine you have your elk tenderloin still at this point in the year, but, uh, we uh can go well, yeah, if maybe. you're cooking that, no, we don't have any at all. <laughs> yeah, we don't sorry. Have well, else. we could <laughs> join up for, join up for a hunt up here this year, maybe, and get some fresh tenderloins. That'd be fun. That sounds good. And, um, uh, Peace, Peace Country Elk Hunting is on our schedule this year. We're going to be nice. in there for a while. So we will definitely hook up with you this year. Yeah. We had great. planned on uh, connecting with you, but our hunt was one day, which like never, right. ever happens yeah. to Blake and yeah. I. Yeah. It's like, because yeah. I, I think we were chatting just before on the way up and I was like, yeah, I'll give you a call. We'll have coffee or something. And it's like, yeah. Hey, Mike, we killed a bull. We're heading home. <laughs> Tagged so, out, heading home. Yeah. yeah. Well, nothing wrong. Yeah. No, we were pretty happy about that. So it was awesome. So, uh, where can people find you? What's the, what's the handle again for Instagram? Oh yeah. I, yeah, I'm on the Instagram. My handle is BC underscore Bridger. Feel free to throw me a, a request or whatever. I, I keep my, my accounts private actually, but, um, yeah. yeah, send me a request. If I can see that we have some similar interests, I do that mainly kind of for work related reasons, I guess you'd say. Um, but yeah, if I can see we have some similar hobbies and interests, I'll definitely, uh, yeah, uh, accept yeah. and probably follow you back. So that's one way you can find me for sure. That's awesome. Well, I think we're going to, uh, we're going to try and get you on. We're going to be doing uh, sheep camp and elk camp again this year, uh, in nice. the summer, probably just before the season starts. So we'll, uh, we'll be in touch. We want to get you on for one or both of those, uh, segments for an interview again and dig into specifics again. So. Oh, that'd be um, awesome. Once again, um, I want to thank you for your uh, your support of Spike Camp and and helping us out and uh, coming on tonight for the interview. It's been great, and uh, we look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me on. It's fun chatting with you.